we are talking about uh, the doctrine of the church now. We started uh, last week talking about the doctrine of the church. We talked about what a church is, right? That a church is an assembly of believers. We talked about uh, the church being the place where the word is preached and where the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are observed. And uh, tonight I want us to talk about um, the relationship between Jesus and the church. So before we get into some of the you know, practical details of how the church is designed to function and what it's supposed to do and who the leaders are and all those kind of things, um, I want us to think about Jesus and the church. And w- one of the reasons for that is um, that uh, a lot of, t- I think sometimes we think about uh, the church and the way the church is structured and organized and what it does as sort of a post-Jesus thing. Like, Jesus had disciples that spent time together, and it was like a nice, you know, small group Bible study fellowship thing. And then Jesus didn't really plan this, but as the church got bigger, it had to, like all, you know, organizations, it had to develop, you know, a hierarchy and this and that and the other and the structure and leadership and all that and that you know that may be necessary but it was not really part of the original design um, and uh, but I don't think that's an accurate way to think about it um, and the reason why um, is because though Jesus does not use the word church very often in fact he only uses it twice um, when he uses the word church on those two occasions, it does seem pretty clear that he already has in mind an organized assembly uh, that has authority um, that uh, you know is basically what comes out of the disciples the apostles' ministry later. Um, in other words, I, I want us to see that the church is not like Paul's idea or Peter's idea, uh, that it really was part of Jesus' plan and what he prepared his disciples to do uh, was to um, help establish um, and guide the church. So um, Matthew 16 is where we're going to start. If you want to turn there, I said there are two places where Jesus uses the word church. There's, of course, a lot of things that Jesus says that would apply to the church. But as far as talking about the church, only two places where he uses that word. Both of them are in the Gospel of Matthew. One of them is in chapter 16. One of them is in chapter 18. Uh, We'll look at both of them this evening. Um, The first one is uh, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. This is a famous... um, passage, of course. It's uh, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. It starts like this. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So uh, Jesus, or Peter, excuse me, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the promised one that they've been waiting for all these years. Um, and Jesus says to Peter, um, not, hey, good job, you're the smartest in the bunch, way to finally crack the code, right? He says, you're blessed because it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you. In other words, no human figured this out and told this to you. Um, instead, it was my Father in heaven who's revealed this to you. God has opened your eyes. God has um, opened your mind, so to speak, to allow you to see um, that I am the Messiah. It's very it's similar to um, in Luke 24 when Jesus has risen from the dead and he's spending time with his disciples and it says he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. It's the same kind of thing here that God has uh, opened Peter's eyes uh, and caused him to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And then you have uh, this uh, incredibly important verse, uh, verse 18, that is literally uh, a division point between millions of Christians, right? And, and has been for a long time. Um, and it's impossible for us to come to this verse without that history sort of in the background. You cannot read verse 18 without thinking about the Pope, right? You just can't. Um, but because we read this verse thinking about the Pope, it makes it hard for us, I think, to understand what the verse really says. So we have to, we have to work at it. We have to work at not letting that history... Um, shade uh, our understanding of this verse in the wrong way. So here's what I mean by that. Okay, so he tells him, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Alright, so let's start with the easy stuff. Jesus says, my church. Right. so there's, there's the word church, the word that means assembly that we talked about last time. Jesus says, the church, the assembly of believers, it's his. It belongs to him. Um, we read in, in uh, I think it's Acts 20, 28, that um, he purchased the church with his own blood. That's certainly what Ephesians 5 says, that Jesus laid down his life for uh, the church, who is his bride. Uh, so the church belongs to Jesus. And the church, big picture, universal church, and every local church belongs to Jesus. So, you know, sometimes um, you uh, encounter people in small churches and big churches that think the church belongs to them. Right? Because my grandparents helped start this church or because of the size of the check that I write for this church, this church is my church. I get to decide what happens here. No, this is Jesus' church. Right? Um, so Jesus says... The church belongs to him. It doesn't belong to the pastor. It doesn't belong to the deacons. It doesn't belong to, you know, the people who've lived here for a thousand years. Whatever. You know, it, it belongs to Christ. So he says, it's my church. And he says, I will build my church. 
Um, a lot of people think that their pastor is responsible for building the church, right? Uh, I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that doesn't say to me, how come we don't have more people? How come Sunday school is not growing? How come you know, we don't have more people joining? How come we're not baptizing more people all the time? You know, um, you can't do, I mean, you can, you can manipulate those things. You can try to make those things happen. Um, but as far as the church truly growing, right, people, not only people being saved, but also people growing in maturity, um, that's something that ultimately Jesus does. We have things, not only the pastor, but the church as a whole, we have things that we're responsible to do to help promote that, like studying the Bible and loving each other and forgiving each other and all that kind of thing. Uh, Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4 and 5. There are things we're responsible to do, but ultimately our spiritual growth and our numerical growth, that is something that's ultimately in Jesus' hands. It's something that he is ultimately in charge of. Um, I mean, and, and, and sort of an extreme example is, you know, if you think about uh, some of the revivals that have occurred throughout the history of the church, like you take the Great Awakening, where um, just so many people um, heard the gospel that they'd probably heard all their life, but it finally clicked and they believed and were saved. Why was that? Did that happen because we brought in some new charismatic preacher nobody had ever heard before and that's no, I mean, one of the main preachers of, of the Great Awakening was Jonathan Edwards. He'd been pastoring his church for years. In fact, the sermon that he's most famous for preaching, uh, through which he probably saw the most conversions, before that famous, before he preached that famous "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God" sermon, where people were falling down the aisle and saying, "What must we do to be saved?" He already preached that sermon at his church, and not much happened. Then he went and preached it somewhere else, and. God saved all kinds of people. You know, so Jesus is the one who builds the church. The church belongs to him. But he says he's going to build the church on the rock. Now that's the tricky part, right? What does it mean when he says he's going to build uh, his church on the rock? Well, um, most of you have probably heard before, because you've been in church for a long time, you've probably heard before, right, that Peter's name means rock. right? So Peter's name is... Um, uh, Petros, right? That's Peter. Uh, and the word rock in Greek is Petra. So Petra, Petra. So you can hear the connection, right? His name means rock. So, you know, somebody said, if you really want to get serious, Peter's name is Rocky, right? And, and he's, he's Simon Bar Jonah, which means the son of Jonah. So he's Rocky Johnson. He's the son of John, and his name is Rocky. That's his name. So, which fits Peter, right? <laughs> I mean, that's you can you can picture calling him that. So, so his name means rock. And right after he says, you know, you are Peter. Why did he call him Peter all of a sudden? He before he just the line before it, he said Simon, which is his other name. Right? But here he says, you are Peter. You're Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, um, as Protestants, we usually, almost out of the gate, we want to say, Jesus is not saying he's going to build the church on Peter. 
And the reason why we're saying that is because of the claim of the Pope in Rome, right, that the church is built on the Apostle Peter, which they then say means, right, that Peter being the first um, bishop of Rome, had, you know, began a succession of bishops of Rome who became you know, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And so the true church has its fountain and head in uh, earthly terms in Peter and then in his successors, the bishops and popes of Rome. So because we already know we don't agree with that, right? Then when, it, then when we read this verse, we go, well, I know it doesn't mean that the church is built on Peter. The problem with that is it sure sounds like he's saying the church is built on Peter, right? Why else is he making this wordplay of Petros and Petra? You are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. If it wasn't for the Pope in Rome, that is exactly what we would say that this verse means, which means... That's what the verse means. That's what the verse is saying. Now, the key is we don't, we don't then go from uh, that understanding of the verse that, Peter, that Jesus is saying he's going to build his church on Peter. We don't then make the conclu- jump to the conclusion from that or reason to the conclusion from that 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 means, you know, the Roman papacy, you know, and, and all that, that entails and that that's where the church is. That's not what that verse means, right? That is, some, that, is, that is an understanding of this verse that they have built on top of what it actually says, right? It doesn't say, you know, and from here on out, the true church will always be headquartered in whoever is the legitimate successor of Peter as the first, you know, leader of the church. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. And saying that, Pete, that Jesus is saying that he's going to build his church on Peter is not the same as saying that. So what is Jesus saying when he says he's going to build his church on Peter? Well, um, one thing he means is um, what Paul says later in Ephesians 2. And you don't have to turn to this verse because we're still looking at at this one in, um, in Matthew 16. But in Ephesians 2, it makes very clear um, that the church, the body of Christ, is built on the apostles. The leader of the apostles, of course, being Peter. And then the uh, cornerstone, right, is Jesus. So here's how it says it. At the end of Ephesians 2, it's talking about these believers, Jews and Gentiles, uh, and particularly the Gentiles who've now become members of the body of Christ. And he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So this is God's house, right? God's temple. And the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, we don't have any problem with that verse, right? Because it doesn't have all the baggage that Matthew 16, 18 has. What that verse is saying is that the house of God, the family of God, the the church, which is the temple of God, um, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, meaning the uh, teaching of the apostles, right? When when the church is born on Pentecost and 3,000 people are saved and are baptized, what do they start doing? They start meeting together and, and... 
what is their what are their meetings about? Acts two, I think it's forty two, says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right? Their lives were built on, were shaped by the teaching of the apostles, which is another way of saying that their lives were built on the teaching of Christ. Because what were the apostles teaching? They were teaching what Jesus had taught them and prepared them to teach others. When Jesus says, uh, you know, that if the wise man is the one who hears my words and does them, that's the guy who builds his house on the rock. This is the same thing he's talking about. The only access we have to the teaching of Jesus comes to us through Peter and John and Matthew and Paul and so on, right? So for Jesus to say, I'm going to build my church on Peter means, in part, that it's going to be founded on the teaching, preaching, writing ministry of Peter where he passes on to the church the things that Jesus taught him to teach us. And I think it also is a reference to Peter's confession of Christ right here. Right? When Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Peter is uh, you know, the only one to speak up and say that right here. Um, you can't separate Peter from his confession in this context. So part of what this means is um, everyone who confesses Jesus as the Christ, like you have just done, Peter, right? That's part of, that's how I'm going to build my church. So, um, so I don't think there's any problem with saying, and I, and I think the wording of the, of the verse means we have to say that Jesus is going to build his church on Peter, but that does not mean all that the Roman Catholic Church has said that it means. It just means what Ephesians 2 says it means. It just means what you see playing out in the book of Acts. Right? Peter is the dominant spokesman leading the church for the first third of the book of Acts. People are listening to his sermons. They're responding in faith. They're being convicted of their sins. They're gathering together. The church is being built on Peter's work along with the other apostles. So, um, <clears throat> so Jesus has in mind already before the cross that he is going to build and cause to grow an assembly of people who, like Peter, will confess that Jesus is the Messiah, they'll trust in him, and they will listen to the teaching of Peter and the other apostles, and that will be what guides and shapes the kind of people that they are and their life together and all those kinds of things, right? So, um, so if somebody says, I think the church is sort of a later invention, you know, Paul made that up or, you know, people even after Paul made that up. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think there's enough there in Matthew 16 to say the church as an institution, the church as a body, the church as an assembly, uh, with, a, with a, you know, defined uh, characteristics. and what, uh, That's there in Jesus' teaching, right? And then one more place, uh, Matthew 18, <clears throat> verse 15 to 20. Um, this is a passage that uh, we normally think of in terms of church discipline, because <clears throat> that's what it's teaching about. But this is the second place, the second of the two places, where <clears throat> Jesus uses the word church, and again, if we pay attention to how he's using it, uh, it's pretty clear that the church, as we know it, at least in its, in its essence, right, like we talked about last time, is something Jesus uh, planned for, prepared for, anticipated, gave instructions about. All right, so here's what he says. 
Verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So, we're familiar with this passage, I think. Jesus is saying, okay, here's how you deal with sin. You're all sinners. You're going to be gathered together in this family, this body. You're going to sin against each other. Some of you are going to go astray. This is what you need to do. When that happens, first thing is if it's a personal or private sin that you happen to know about, you go talk to that person one on one, confront them, not for the purpose of making them feel bad, but for the purpose of bringing them back, bringing them to repentance. Uh, and if he listens, great, it's over, you don't have to worry about it anymore. That's your goal. But if he doesn't listen, then you take one or two other people with you. Um, you have more people saying, hey, you need to repent. This is not the right thing to do. You need to apologize. You need to make this right. Um, and uh, that way it's not just your word against this person's word if it goes beyond this circle. Um, and hopefully he listens to the three of you, the two or three of you. But if he doesn't, then he says in verse 17, then you tell it to the church. Well, what is that? Tell it to what is the? Ch- I mean, it's it's this, right? It's it's. We know from last time the the word church means an assembly, and we know that when Jesus and the other uh, people in the New Testament talking about the church, when they talk about the church, they're talking about an assembly of believers in Jesus, just like we saw in Matthew 16. People who believe he's the Messiah, believe that he's Lord, confess his name, and so Jesus is assuming. Right, that there's going to be not just you know random pockets of disciples, but there are going to be people who assemble together in His name, right? And that if something like this happens, then what the what they're supposed to do is to go to the whole body, right, and say, "Here's a guy. He's part of us. He's a part of our assembly, right? He gathers with us, and he's gone astray into sin and." You know, this guy wouldn't talk to him and he wouldn't listen. And then he brought a couple other guys to talk to him and he wouldn't listen to them. He's refusing to repent. And so now we're coming before the whole church and we're saying this, you know, we need to pray for this brother. We need to, we need to call him to account for what he's doing. And if he doesn't listen to us, we've got to deal with it, right? So that, I mean, Jesus has that in mind, right? That idea of church, he's preparing his disciples ahead of time for what that's going to look like. And he says to them, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, what does that mean? Well, Gentiles and tax collectors are outsiders, right? They're, they're not part of us, right? They're part of them, which means that the church has an identity Right, and you can even make an argument from this um, that uh, I remember uh, learning this from a, a book that I read years and years ago, I think back when I was in seminary. Can you 
can you show from the Bible that there ought to be such a thing as church membership? You know, or is that just a thing we kind of made up? And I didn't think you could show that from the Bible. But then, just reading this little booklet, pointing to verses like this one, I mean, how do you do this if you don't know who belongs and who doesn't? I mean, how do, how do you how do you say now we are going to treat you as a Gentile if before we weren't treating you as a brother and knew that you were part of us? Right? Now, whether or not they wrote it down on paper, you know, who knows? But there's a there's a clear boundary and a clear identity that the church has. And so Jesus says, if somebody's refusing to repent, he's no longer acting like a follower of Jesus, and so you need to treat him like a Gentile. Which, by the way, does not mean be mean to him. It means you let him know that he's not part of the family anymore, but that you love him and you want him to be a part of the family. And the way you get into the family is by repenting and trusting in Jesus. So you just treat him like a lost person that you love and want to be saved. Uh, But again, it's pretty clear there, right, that... Jesus does have a plan and a purpose and is giving instructions for an organized assembly of believers who would gather together, who would deal with sin, who would together confess Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, the church is Jesus' idea. It's not Paul's idea. It's not, you know, some guy in the second century's idea who thought, I know what let's do. Let's organize this thing and put ourselves on top and then we'll you know, have all this extra power. No, it's, it, Jesus planned this. Jesus set this up. We get more instruction later in the New Testament, but that's what usually happens, right? Um, so um, anyway, so before we get into you know, some of the practical things about leaders and ordinances and what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do and all that kind of thing, I, I wanted us to, to have this foundation, right, of seeing that this is not, uh, this is not a later New Testament or, or a post-New Testament thing. This is a thing that Jesus established, that Jesus cares about, that Jesus is involved in. Uh, that Jesus is present with us, even in the hardest moments, like dealing with church discipline. That's the context where he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. Um, and probably part of the reason why he says that is because nobody wants to be in that context, right? Um, so anyway, I wanted us to get that uh, clear in our, in our minds uh, before we move on to the other things. So 